Hey, hey everyone. Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're glad that you're here. Grab some pizza, grab a drink if you haven't already, and grab a seat. We are going to get started. As you guys settle in, I just want to say a word of welcome to you if this is your first time. We're so glad that you're here. The way this evening typically works is you'll see these little sheets of paper kind of scattered around the room. On the top is a QR code where you can submit any question at any point tonight, whether it has to do with what we're about to talk about or not. And it's a great opportunity for us to see kind of what really matters to you, and we're always interested in that sort of thing. We are about to spend the next this time and the next time. Um, well, first of all, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We're glad to see you back. That we took a three-week break because yes. of Thanksgiving, so it's been a we're little on while. The roof. And we were on the roof, which was really really cool. And then we were in the party room. We were in the party room and then the roof, I think. Yeah. 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 We've been. But have you noticed a difference with the whiskey room? No. Uh, the floors, obviously. Uh, no, the decorations, obviously. But they also redid the floors. They've redone a lot of things, and it looks spectacular. So we're super thankful for the folks at Henry's. As always, thank you to Clark, who is the man who's helping us out tonight uh, and helps us out almost every time that we're here. Oh, yeah. Hi. I'm Justin Hare. I'm one of the people here at Theology on Tap. I'm a clergy at St. Philip's. Are you sure? Yeah, I think so. Uh, And who are you? I'm Brian. Brian. I'm Justin's friend. That's right. So we are going to talk about a couple, one thing tonight and one thing, uh, gosh, this is off to a great start. So the topic for tonight, what we're going to talk about, um, it's kind of an obscure thing, but how to use time and space to help you in your relationship with God, growing deeper in your faith. And if that sounds a little too Star Trek-y, just stay with us for a bit. We're not talking about space tonight, and by space I mean like design and architecture. We'll get to that next time. Not the final frontier. Not the final frontier, exactly. Tonight we're talking about time though, and time actually is, if you, you may, I have not done a whole lot of thinking about time until relatively recently, but it's a tremendous asset to your faith to use it wisely, but also we'll talk a little bit about a number of things, but we're going to talk about, so time and how to use time to help you in your faith. Brian, what, what would you want to start with when we're talking about how time might help you grow in your faith and how to approach it? Well, I think one of the things that's important to do is to take a couple of steps back and think about what time actually is. And I don't want to get all trippy on you or anything, but uh, part, of, part of the idea is that in our culture today and really since the Industrial Revolution, We really view time as a commodity and something to be used and spent. And that is actually an innovation over the course of the way humans have viewed time. And for most of human history, time was viewed as a gift. Each day was viewed as a gift. And there really was no such thing as a schedule, per se, until clocks got invented. And clocks came sort of around and through the process of bells and monasteries. And that type of timekeeping was originally designed to regularly call people to prayer. So there are two um, Greek words for time. One is chronos, which is where we get our word chronological. um, And the other is kairos. And so chronos is the time that we live in where we're like looking at our watch. And I was late for Theology on Tap tonight, so um, I was thinking about Kronos. But Kairos is the eternal time in which God lives. It is a time that is without schedule, um, that is without pressure or hurry or any of those kinds of things. And the more that we live into our spiritual life and understand that Kronos is something that's imposed on top of a stream of time that God created to be a gift to us, that will help us. And part of what we're going to do tonight is try to tie this in a little bit with the idea of Advent. And the idea of Advent, one of the ideas of it, and we'll explain about Advent a little bit more later, but one of the ideas of Advent is that it's supposed to break your step. 
So like if you're like charging along through your life, it's supposed to make you stop and reflect a little bit. And one of the reasons that that is important is that when we are too absorbed with Kronos, we get in the habit of, um, I guess one metaphor for this is looking down all the time. We're looking at what's going on in our world, on our phone, on our Google Calendar, all of those kinds of things. And we are not looking up. Because when you look up and you look into the vastness of the sky, and I hope you looked up sometime today because the sky was just this beautiful blue ethereal dome up there, it calls you toward things that are eternal and timeless. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For the sake of um, pausing on a lot of like philosophical ideas about time, just think practically about all the inventions and technology that's happened that is designed to help people, right? The whole point was that we would become more efficient. We would have more time. So the clock was made, right? And just, just imagine the busyness, the hurriedness of life, and the stress with all of that as clocks, as cell phones, as time-keeping devices were made. Have our lives become less stressful? Absolutely not, right? But think about when your life was, I mean, thousands of years ago, I guess, when there was the rising and the setting of the sun. There were seasons that some seasons, like in you know, harvest or um, in the summer, you worked more. And you would have to work really hard. And in the wintertime, you worked a lot less. And this, yeah. these rhythms of life gave, I, I think, credence to the fact that we're not machines and that there's a rhythm that we as humans are meant to follow. And so how we're going to get to Advent is that the church has understood this and it tries to tries to sanctify or use time to help people uh, remember who they are. And I love this quote. N.T. Wright says in The Victory of God that one of the most revealing questions, one of the uh, whose answer reveals so much about how you view yourself and the world around you is this question. What time is it? So you, how you tell time, how you mark your time, reveals a lot about what you believe about yourself, about the world around you, what's important to you. And there's a lot of ways that if you... So the church has used what's called a number of... How does the church mark time, first of all? Let's, let's stop there. Well, one of the things that's really interesting in the church... Um, that was true from the earliest days of the church and is still true in liturgical churches is there's something that's called the liturgical calendar. And it basically still has the 12 months of the year, but it just started, the liturgical calendar just started this past Sunday with the first Sunday of Advent. And the church calendar is laser focused on the life of Jesus. And so it points you through the life of Jesus starting with uh, the Annunciation and Jesus' incarnation up through his life and teaching, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and then focuses again on his teaching and then ends with a celebration of Christ the King and then goes right back to Advent again. So all through the year you're focused on a different part of Jesus' life and the idea is to remind you experientially that everything in your life should revolve around who Jesus is and the fact that he entered time. This is one of the things we miss when we think about the incarnation is to think about someone who is eternal choosing to enter into time. It's a little bit like if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, um, thinking of Arwen uh, and Aragorn. Jesus is much bigger than Harwin, but it's a little bit of that element. But that, that's part of how we mark time in the church is through that liturgical calendar and their rhythms that are associated with each one of those seasons of the church year. And that's very sensory. There are different colors. There are different candles that are used. Um, there may be different foods that are customary to eat. There's different music. So it's to engage all of who we are in focusing in on this time. Yeah. And so the whole year is structured in a way with time. Also, God established the pattern of the week, right? And a, a work and a Sabbath, a day where you cease to work, right? And that's one way that 
the Bible helps us set apart time for our good and for our growth. Uh, you also think about um, how the day with like morning and evening prayer, the original daily devotions, started in the Reformation in England with what's called the mixed life tradition, where people who worked secular jobs, they did morning and evening prayer going through the Bible. So even their days had this rhythm of being in God's Word and reminding them who they are. But one of the things, so truth be told, I grew up in a liturgical church and I hated it because it felt very formal. But one of the things that really changed in my life was when I realized that everybody has a liturgical calendar. Right. How you, everybody marks their calendar and their time a certain way. And two examples, like, so one of the ways that the United States makes sure that its citizens know who they are is that they celebrate things like Fourth of July and Memorial Day and Veterans Day. It marks the time and it reforms its citizens to hold things that are valuable to that country. And that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, but for Christians, what's the most important thing about who we are? It's being who we are in Jesus and his people. And so that's what really, as you alluded to, the, the liturgical calendar going from Advent where you, the promise of Jesus is coming to his coming at, at, uh, at Christmas, uh, all the way you know, through his earthly life, death and resurrection at Easter, and then what's called uh, ordinary time, which is not what I thought boring time, but that's really from ordinal, because it was a number, how many Sundays after Easter, basically, or Pentecost, I should say. Um, so it traced the life of Jesus, and it traced the life of his people, is how the church has tried to mark its time and form its people. And Advent is a real, what's cool about that is if you think about our culture today, we like to hit only on certain notes. You should be, like, for instance, when does Walmart and, when, when do Walmart and Lowe's say Christmas begins? After Halloween. Not even after Halloween, some places. I remember in Clemson, it started in September one time. I saw Christmas stuff there. But, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And so, like, a lot of the American calendar is focused on exuberance and joy and consumerism, right? But one of the amazing things about the church calendar is it gives voice to particular, uh, the full expression of human existence in a fallen world. So there's seasons like Lent, which are penitential, where we fast and we remember our sin and we think about that, we confess it, and the world will be like, why in the world are you doing that? You should just focus on good things and happy things. Advent is a similar kind of season to Lent, where it's, it's not, we don't jump to the joy of Christmas yet, but we sit in so many different themes, but I'm going to let you jump in with, what are some of your favorite themes and, and parts of Advent? Oh, boy. Uh, I can talk for hours about this, but I won't. Um, one, of, one of the things that I love about Advent is the idea of expectant waiting. And we have not been very good about that in our culture because we want it now. We want it when we want it. Thank you very much. And Advent is about expectant waiting, of looking towards something that you are certain is coming, but it isn't here yet. And so you are anticipating it. And there is a sense in which you cannot experience joy unless you have waited with anticipation for something. Uh, one of the other things that I love about Advent is that it is designed to help refire our sense of wonder. And most of us, um, our sense of wonder is not in very good shape. Um, we, we don't feed it. And... Uh, the sense of wonder is what allows you to be amazed or awestruck, not only by something that's true, but something also that might be beautiful or something that might be good. And so Advent is designed through some of its practices to help you step out of chronos, the chaos of your chronos, and to step into kairos. That's why, like with the Advent wreath, there's the tradition of lighting the one candle for the first week, and you see those other three that are not lit yet, and the whole point of it is to not light them yet, because you are walking a path of waiting. And this is why I'm somewhat obsessed with the Mumford song, I Will Wait. Um, it's really good. Um, and it even has the part in there about break my step, um, which is the whole idea of Advent. And one last thing, uh, 
I can go on. But, but one last thing about that is um, the relentless focus of Advent on the incarnation. And this is, I was telling Justin, this is sort of an oxymoron. The title of the series of this book is Popular Patristics. And I'm not sure patristics are popular, but um, these are from the church fathers. And this is a treatise called On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius that was written in the 400s. And you probably think, oh my god, I would never read something like that. It is so awesome. If you want to have your sense of wonder refired, just get this. And don't even read the whole thing, just read, just pick a random page. Because one of the things that Advent is about is helping us understand the absolute incredible fact that the Lord, the God who made the heavens and earth and everything that is beautiful and true, chose to enter into his own creation in the most vulnerable and helpless form of a baby. And it is absolutely mind-boggling, and the, the reason he did that was because of his love for us and his desire to bring salvation to the world. And we just take that for granted so much and don't, don't think about it, but firing your sense of wonder about that uh, is something that I think is just really good for your soul. And we can't let it go without saying that there's an introduction or preface uh, yeah. by, by C.S. Lewis. Uh -huh. Yeah, so you may have heard of him. He uh, wrote, so if you're like ever daunted by picking up somebody not from the 21st century and reading them, let me, this is a great place to start. Don't, you really don't need to be. There's some things certainly that are going to be really challenging from. And tedious. Yeah, and hard. But, but this one's that not. one's not one of them. There's things like Augustine's Confessions, which are so readable today. I was, that was one of the things when I started doing that, I was surprised just how readable some of these works of history are. But um, yeah, what you're talking about pondering, and really you have to slow down enough to ponder and to, and to wait. And that's what I love. One of the things I love about Advent is it goes against the grain of, of our culture, which just wants to get to the next thing and to hurry but to actually wait enough to, to meditate and to mm -hmm. ponder, not in the sense of like emptying yourself meditating, but like fixating and studying and thinking about different truths of the Bible. And so that's, that's a good one. I thought the, the whole light and darkness theme would have been one that, that you had talked about. Advent definitely picks up yes. on a lot of that. Yes, that, that is such a huge thing. And that's part of the reason why candles are a big part mm -hmm. um, of Advent. And uh, there are some, some wonderful Advent carol services that they still do in the UK where they start off with a prophecy from the Old Testament and then one person lights one candle and as they begin to sing Creator of the Stars of Night, which is this beautiful uh, medieval plain chant song, um, people start passing the light. And the crazy thing is if you go into a dark room, if you have only one candle, that one candle invades and illuminates that darkness. But the more candles that you bring, the brighter that is. So there, there's a lot of beauty to that. The other thing that is really wonderful in Advent is there is a lot of great, uh, what I would call devotional music that's been written over the years for Advent. And there will be, I'm gonna give a little plug here um, there will be an extraordinary opportunity to step out of Kronos into Kairos, if you wish, um, this Sunday at 5.30, because we're going to do an Advent Evensong at St. Philip's, and it's going to be just treble voices, just high voices that have even more of that ethereal sound. And it is a great meditative, contemplative sort of service to just think about the wonder of Advent. So... I would commend that to you. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I resented in my upbringing in a liturgical church was how finicky people got. It's, it felt like they were curmudgeons about Christmas because they were always saying, it's not Christmas yet. Like, don't jump to Christmas. And I didn't quite understand that. And I get kind of where that's coming from. But when you start to see some of the richness of what Advent does, I can start to sympathize with why people in liturgical traditions have appreciated what Advent is all about. Um, Advent, I don't know, we haven't even said, it, it comes from the Latin meaning coming, 
And if you come to a liturgical church and hear some of the lessons that are assigned, you'll probably think this is strangely not really about Jesus' first coming, but it's all about the end of the age when he comes again. And that's one of the things I love about Advent, the whole light-dark theme. It's that there is, it gives full weight to the darkness mm-hmm. and the brokenness and the, the loneliness of this world, right? And, and at this time of year, especially, I think a lot of us feel that. And what Advent really gets at is that all that is broken in this world, Jesus came at first to deal with sin, and he's going to right every wrong at the end of the age. And so Advent is this tension of living both between the time of when Jesus came first and awaiting his coming again when he will finally bring fullness and there'll be no darkness at all. And I want, if you haven't read any of Advent, if you're curious, this is a great little book. It's not really, I mean, there's a collection of sermons, so it can be as little as you want it to be, I guess. Um, but it is, it's maybe a little thicker, but it's Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ by Fleming Rutledge. And I've been really blessed by this book, but I just wanted to read this paragraph um, that really hits at why I love Advent. It says, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can be well called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between the coming of Christ at first, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. Many of the sermons in this book will require this theme in relation to the yearly frenzy of holiday time in which the commercial Christmas music insists that it's the most wonderful time of the year and Starbucks invites everyone to feel the merry, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives. And so that gets it, like I said, just the, the tension of the darkness and yet the coming of the second coming of Christ that we look forward to. And there's something I think that resonates with people that they realize it can't always be this high all right. the time. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that whole idea of uh, anticipation, you know, and so the reason that there are these Advent calendars where there's one little thing each day, um, we are wired in such a way that anticipation builds joy, and there's so much more joy when you've anticipated something. It's the same thing if you're planning a wonderful trip to a place you've never been before. Um, a lot of the joy is in imagining it and thinking what you're going to do with your time and all of that, rather than just jumping right into it without thinking about it. But one of the other things that I love about Advent is that there are so many resources and practices that can help you inhabit that time in a way that's meaningful. There's a lot of great music out there. We've talked a little bit about the Advent wreath. Um, That's another thing that can be really wonderful. You might have noticed our playlist was a little strange tonight, and that was deliberate that we had uh, some, I guess what you might call pop music about Advent, uh, interspersed with some chants to sort of break your step on that a little bit. But in in the chant world, if you've never experienced or listened to chant, Advent can be a great way to lean into that stream, because that's where the way that a lot of the early church made music. And there are these things called the O antiphons um, for Advent that go way back probably to the 500s. Uh, Boethius, who was a famous author, who wrote a book called The Consolation of Philosophy, which in the 6th century, other than the Bible, was the biggest bookseller in all of the world. Um, he talks about these antiphons, and there's one for each of the seven days before Christmas, and they refer to different characteristics of Jesus. And they're beautiful, and um, they help you to meditate on the truth of uh, who Jesus is and the wonder of what God is doing in sending him into the world. 
Yeah, I feel. I just want to say that if all this sounds very foreign and weird to you, let me just affirm that that's how it's felt to me a lot in my life, especially earlier on. Um, and it should feel that and way. And it should feel yeah. that way to a sense, but to don't be so discouraged to not try one of those things. Like, you know, uh, I, I, for a lot of my life, I was like, you don't find Advent, really, or like the word Advent in the Bible, or you don't see Advent wreaths anywhere. Like, all these things can be distractions. Well, that's one way of looking at it, but uh, when you look at them as tools, like, for instance, we, we just had a bunch of college students at our house and made Advent wreaths, and it's like, there's nothing magical about an Advent wreath, although yeah. they look beautiful. They, the ones they made were amazing. Um, but especially with like children, I think all of us in our heart of hearts, when we pause and we light a candle, something resonates with us. And in terms of just slowing down and just adding something like, okay, lighting a candle, saying Jesus is the light of the world, reciting that scripture verse, and then reading a passage of the Bible and praying a prayer, just something as simple as that, you'd be amazed. You do that over a couple weeks and find the difference that it, it might. It's a very, Advent's a time where there's low-hanging fruit to enter into some practices that might be beneficial that are maybe different than what you have currently done. Yeah, and particularly if you feel that you are experiencing stress, anxiety, loneliness, any of those kinds of things in your life, adding this sort of stepping out of Kronos into Kairos by doing some Advent practices um, I think you'll find that it's very life-giving. And I want to give another plug. Um, my friend Betsy Cahills, who some of y'all might know, does a wonderful Advent devotional that you can get to come right into your email. Uh, if you just Google Betsy Cahill, it should come up. But it's a scripture passage and a work of art to meditate on, as well as a musical selection that relates to the scripture passage. And I found it to be really meaningful during Advent. Yeah. That's good. Well, that's we've probably already said too much, but I think that's a great place to check in and see how we're doing on questions. In case you can't tell, we're very enthusiastic about Advent up here. Yeah, so everybody make sure that you get a copy of those printouts that are around the room. If you haven't already, go ahead and scan that for the QR code. I'm sure there are many questions already. But if you don't find ones there that you're curious about, please feel free to ask your own. So just take a minute to look at those, vote the ones you want to hear, and take an opportunity to ask ones not already posted. questions asked what do you think of companies or organizations that monetize advent or lit for example an advent calendar of cosmetics that's become a popular thing actually of late where you know i'm seeing there's like advent wine calendars oh, yeah. and advent oh and i'm like oh and it it has more to do with the selling of a product. It actually has very little to do with either the first or the second coming of Jesus, which is kind of just a, a bandwagon approach to trying to sell something, probably. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of those things. Uh, I think that part of the reason that I'm not a big fan is that I think that they... So often in those kinds of things, the focus turns from something external to a sort of self-gratification thing um, through whatever it is that you're like going through on the advent calendar. 
The flip side of it is anything that has the word Advent helps the concept to not die out completely in the culture. So in some ways, there might be some good things about that. All press is good press. No. No. What does it look like as a Christian to be productive? That's a great question. Oh, that is a really good question. Um, You could write a long book on that. And I think the, the key to that question is to figure out what definition of productive you are using. Um, for, from my perspective, I would say for a Christian to live a life that is productive, it should be a life that is rich in producing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are not deliverables that we think of in the business sense today, but they are character and spiritual qualities that should transform your relationships. And I think that when you look at Jesus, what you see is that his ministry is all about relationships. So I think in the the larger context, that is the way I would view it. Um, If you are interpreting productivity what does it mean for me and my work as a Christian to be productive? I think the scriptures charge us to work at whatever we're called to with all our heart, as is if working to the Lord, um, but also call us to do that within the context of all the other uh, things that are expected of the people of God so that we would not allow um, our work to become an idol. Yeah, there's so much that you want to say in this. I think defining productivity in a Christian sense is faithful stewardship of what God has called you to do. So calling and stewardship Mm -hmm. and being faithful with that time that you've been given, which is more kairos rather than chronos. I think we have to name the fact that today we are far too more likely to be um, looking at productivity as a way to get all these things done for this for what goal what end just to amass certain things that make us feel better or or whatnot but um, getting uh, that I'm this is a perfect opportunity to talk about the 4,000 weeks book I think that I'll, I'll let you do but I, before I let you talk about that I love a picture of productivity I think of the Christian life is in Martin Luther when I forget where he says this, but he was overwhelmed with work in his day. And he was feeling like, you know, you probably felt that coming in and you just feel absolutely overwhelmed with all the stuff that you need to do that you have no idea where to begin. And he said, I have so many things to do today that I can spend no less than three hours in prayer before I begin. And it sounds ridiculous, but his prayer was to faithfully seek the heart of God, so as to prioritize which actual things he must do in that time. And that always stuck with me, because that just sounds like flies in the face of productivity today. But the, the takeaway is he was giving time to evaluate in prayer what God was calling him to do with the time that he had. Yeah, and the other thing I would say is that part of the productivity mindset. I used to work for a management consulting firm, so I have much that I need to repent of. But um, the part of the idea of productivity is that there is some deliverable out of all the time that you spend. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of what we're called to as Christians, there's not a deliverable. Mm-hmm. There's not a deliverable to worship. You know, worship is something that is focused on God. Um, contemplation and beauty uh, that leads us to worship is something that is profoundly unproductive in our world's view. You know, to go and spend an hour watching the sunset and just thinking about how beautiful it is and being moved by that, that's not productive per se. But as Justin said, 4,000 Weeks, which is not a Christian book, but has a lot of wisdom about time and part of what he says is that particularly in the culture today there is more on most of our plates than is physically possible to do even if you worked 24 hours a day seven days a week and so we live in this constant state 
of being afraid and overwhelmed that we're going to be found out that we're not productive enough. And he says, that is no way to live. And the scriptures would agree with that truth. And that he said, instead, you know, you have to choose what you're going to do. And that you need to use uh, a filter uh, about what you feel that God has called you to and what will lead to flourishing rather than um, completely being guided by other people's expectations. Yeah. One quick last thing on this is it works both ways, right? It, I think a lot of people that I talk to who are young adults today um, feel like they're both trying to do too much and that they can't do anything at all. And so the problem is both we don't know how to prioritize what we're called to do and then we don't know actually how to start and stop procrastinating when we know what we need to do. And I think when you view productivity in light of faithful stewardship of your, what God's calling you to do, using the Bible as a lens of what, is it, what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to be who he's called you to be, um, that's going to both fight against procrastination as well as overworking and trying to do too much for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and the, the, one more thing to add on that. Um, <laughs> we I could do a whole one on that. I this. know we could. I talked about this some in my sermon on Sunday, but one of the things that you also have to reckon with is opportunity cost. And if you have studied economics, you know what that is. It basically means if I choose to do X with my time, that means there's not time for me to be able to do Y. And so that's the opportunity cost. So you have to give up whatever that other thing was. So if you choose to spend six hours binging on Netflix, uh, that means that those six hours that were available to uh, serve your friend who's having a hard time or be with a family member or worship the Lord, um, those hours are gone. Obviously a great question. What do we got next? How do you navigate the glory of waiting and anticipation? Versus living with expectations, especially when some say, quote, expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. Depends on what you're expecting, probably. Yeah. Um, that's a great question, too, because I think, again, it does depend on what those expectations are. And if you're having expectations of other people versus having... Um, <coughs> Like in Advent, what we're talking about is anticipation of the, the joy of celebrating Christmas, which we know will come, that we know that Christ's incarnation is a fact that has already happened in history, so we're anticipating something that is certain. Um, whereas with expectations, especially if they're expectations that you have of other people, and particularly if they're expectations that are in your head, that you have not communicated to the other people that you may perhaps have expectations of, um, that is probably not going to end well. Um, but I do think that uh, there, there is a role for expectations, but I do think that it requires us to make sure that we are uh, doing a good job of communicating with the people that are part of our community um, that may be involved with those expectations. Yeah. Yeah, what's the source of the expectation? I think in Advent, you're looking at something both as a historical fact, but also something that is explicitly stated from God's revealed word of he will come again, that he is coming at the end of the age. And so that expectation is incredibly important because you know it's mm -hmm. certain. There's a sense in which a lot of our expectations in the day-to-day -day life, what the scriptures say is that we, can, we have no idea what's coming tomorrow. But what is certain is that we can face all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that's one of those, that I think, when your certainty is in accord with what God's word actually says, you're able to endure the hardships of this life while also looking to the certain coming where every wrong will be righted and death will be no more. Switching gears, we have a question on baptism. hey -o. <laughs> said just me, uh, but keep going. Is it better for a baby to be baptized but not raised in the faith or not baptized at all? If the first, why deny baptism? If the second, are the graces of baptism real? 
I'm going to go ahead and say this one person who's asking this needs to come and talk to me afterwards. Um, because I have so, I love this question, actually. And I have so many thoughts on it. Um, and it was a really personal one. I was a Baptist for a while. Then I became an Anglican after I was raised an Anglican. So and we have a great book on this, too. I have, I, I have yeah. so many good books on this. But how would you answer this question shortly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was tricky. Um, yeah, I would say that there are graces associated with baptism, um, but that they also are graces that require faith, and that the the graces without faith um, may not prove to be fruitful. But I, I do think that one of the things that you see is the idea of baptism being connected with, at least in our tradition, with making promises that are very serious promises. And I think that when the baptism um, is done with the uh, promises being made in good faith, that that is uh, something that makes a difference. But this is, again, it's something that you it needs to be a longer discussion yeah. than this to be able to go into it thoroughly. So my one-minute answer for everybody here to try to... Okay, baptism's important. It's in the Bible. Christians disagree uh, from various traditions on how to do baptism. Do children of believers get baptized or not? That's the question that's here. What all Christians agree on is that baptism is something that's really important. That has, It's a sign of chiefly what God's love has done for us in Jesus Christ, that he um, has cleansed us from sin when we trust in him. And actually, the act of going under the water and coming up out of the water is a sign of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's meant to be, you know, sacraments like baptisms, they're, they're visible sermons. They're not just words, but it's important that we actually see God's uh, love enacted. And so I think that's what I would want to say in terms of I've got dear friends who are Baptists who didn't baptize their, their children, and it's okay, I think, to disagree amongst Christians on, on what to do there. I did baptize my children, and I would counsel those in, in my church that it's a good thing. Uh, our tradition holds that it doesn't guarantee salvation at all, but it is a sign of God's love set towards you, and yeah, you need to trust in those promises. Just like listening to a sermon does you no good without faith in what the the sermon's actually talking about. So to faith, uh, baptism without trusting in what these promises of baptism are uh, portraying does you no good, is what our tradition would right. say. Right, if it's an empty form, it's nothing. That's right. Yes. So, good luck <laughs> with that. <laughs> also, for the room, adding to what Reverend O'Hare said earlier, if you do have questions or want further clarification, the reverends will be available at the conclusion of the Q&A. Uh, which there are several creative questions on the list which we may not get to, so if you feel so inclined, you may ask them after our Q&A as well. I love creative questions. <laughs> Very creative. What do you think is the best thing to do for a Christian who is struggling with their faith and or wants to build upon their faith? That's a great question. Uh, I think that if you are struggling with your faith and wanting to grow in your faith, one of the best things you can do is to look at what you are investing your time in currently. And uh, I would recommend a couple of things that if you're not doing, um, to begin doing. One would be to find an older Christian uh, who can help mentor you uh, and that you can talk to about whatever your struggles might be. Uh, I think getting into a weekly worship rhythm is really important. Uh, getting into a rhythm of reading God's Word. And I would say, especially if you're struggling, I would just start with the Gospel and just stay in a Gospel for a while. Um, and also that, to just make sure that the things that you have um, being put into your life are things that are not going to be taking you away from the kingdom of God. So uh, scripture talks a lot about the company that you keep and the influence that, that has. And so if you are spending a lot of time with people who are what I would call evangelical atheists, 
um, that is probably not going to really help you uh, if you're struggling with your faith. So um, strong Christian fellowship can be a great blessing in that regard. That's, that's really good. I was going to say community is the first thing that comes to mind. That I love the image of the coals, right? You take a, a bed of flaming coals, you take one away, what happens to it? It stops flaming and it dies. But if you bring it right back in, almost you know, in an yeah. instant, it will reflame. That's a picture of Christian community uh, and the Holy Spirit flaming your, your love and your faith. You need that community together to be within that. So that's that's one of the important things. Kind of as you said, what 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 you put in is also going to come out. So if you're trying to do some things, but who you surround yourself with, what you occupy your mind with, what you look at often, those things are going to affect how you feel about God. There's just no other way around it. And so I, I would say adopting a practice together with other people is ideal. Mm-hmm. But um, the, some of these ancient things that we've talked about before, prayer, reading the Bible together, it's not the flashy things that help the most. It's these things that are done faithfully with other people, um, the spiritual disciplines. that, and, and just pick one and commit to it and stick with it. And you know, ask the Lord, where in my life do, are, are there things that I need to give up and to prune away as I adopt maybe one practice of, of these things. And talk to me in a few weeks after doing that, and I, I bet you will see a change. I believe we have one final question that may yeah. bring it all full circle based on our topic, and that is, how do we as Christians break away from the pressures on our time in work and culture to focus more on godly uses of our time? That is a really good question. Um, And I think that part of the answer is to uh, reframe the way that you view your time. And I think that often we prioritize our work and our workout routine and all of these other things, and then we sort of try to take what's left over and hope that that's going to turn into a vibrant spiritual life. And it doesn't usually work that way. So I think one of the first things to do is to commit to a regimen of spiritual practices of being in scripture, of being in fellowship, doing a lot of things that we just talked about, um, and making sure that those are things that you are committed to. And it may be that you are in a uh, work sort of situation where you feel like you have to be working all the time. Um, If you're in a situation where you feel like you're working 24-7, I would say that you might need to think about whether that is where you really should be work-wise, because I think that is uh, profoundly unhealthy. But the flip side of that is even within demanding work schedules, there can be a way, even if you have to work in the evening, from time to time or even semi-regularly of being able to take an hour off and to go deep into a spiritual practice during that time, maybe to do that time with someone else. But I think you just have to be profoundly intentional. I think for the problem for many of us, including myself, is that I want it to just sort of happen magically and that um, it will just instantly happen without um, sacrifice or intentionality, and that's not the way it works. Yeah. Um, real quick about the last question, The Common Rule by Justin Whitmill Early is a great place to start yep. if you're looking to grow in your faith with others and practices. All right, this question is, um, what was the question? <laughs> I had an answer. How, how do you basically deal with if you are in a career yep. and you have all of those demands, how in the same time do you manage to have a right. strong spiritual and, and it goes back, I think, to telling time. Um, as you said, Ian, going full circle. I don't know if you, you look at your calendar and your phone, Google is happy to tell you how to order your time. Like it just puts in there certain holidays and months and stuff that you had no idea you were celebrating, but it's in there. <laughs> um, and then also your job is going to tell you how you should order your time. 
American culture is going to tell you how to structure your time. One of my favorite books, the title of it is called Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann. And that is really kind of full circle at the heart of what we're talking about is how you order your time as a pilgrim, as a Christian in this foreign world. Like This is not our ultimate home, that we belong to citizens of a different kingdom, God's kingdom. And so what we value is going to be different. And so we must, in some sense, resist all these other things that are telling us what's important and how we organize our time. And so taking a weekly Sabbath and ceasing from your work is going to help you, A, be more productive. Like, you're going to actually need to commit to doing your work when you're supposed to be doing it. But it also puts a stake in the ground saying, I am not what I produce, no matter how much America and my boss tell me that I am. And that's really, really important. And the same thing is true about the liturgical calendar. We're reminding who we really are and what our ultimate values are. And it's going to be resistance to the world around us. And I would say just one practical thing. If you, whatever organizational tool you use for your life, whether it's Google Calendar or, or an old-fashioned day timer or whatever it might be, one of the things that you can do is at the beginning of each week is to make appointments or block time um, for specific purposes, whether it be worship or scripture or um, time with a friend, whatever it might be, and build that into your schedule because often what happens is your schedule can be like a juggernaut that you get on it and it just rolls over you. But if you set those things in your calendar, um, it can sometimes help you to be able to, as we were saying earlier, break your step and step out of all of that and step into God's time for a while. That's good. Well, guys, thank you all. Uh, hopefully that was helpful. I know we tried to do a lot in talking about time and Advent, and I think it went all right. I think it was good. So next, uh, next time, we're going to be back two weeks, December 13th, back in here, uh, and we can't wait to see you then. Stick around. Uh, grab another drink. Clark's back there. Make sure you tip well. We're super grateful for the folks at Henry. So thanks for coming, and we'll be around for a while.